evening and welcome to the new school. My name is Ira Silverberg and I am the co-chair with Dorothy Allison of the Lesbian and Gay Committee at Penn. On behalf of the entire committee and Penn, I'd like to welcome you all to the second evening of literary gossip and romance that we have put together with the new school. Um, a year and a half ago, we did an event during all of the gay pride festivities. It was during um, the big Stonewall celebration and the idea behind the event, which was an evening of gossip and romance, mostly pre-Stonewall, was to remind people that there was a gay and lesbian literary life a long time ago, um, that gay and les lesbian literary books have been coming out for two, three, four hundred years, some might say, longer, and that, that the commercialization of, of gay and lesbian literature is something that, that's relatively new and that as mainstream as it may have become, there are really important literary voices that deserve to be heard from. And tonight, some writers will be reading from the letters and lore and memoir and work of people that they hold dear. Uh, beginning this evening's reading is Allen Ginsberg, who is many things, a distinguished professor at Brooklyn College, a member of the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters, perhaps the best known living American poet who has altered not only our literary lives, but I think our cultural and political lives. Allen Ginsberg will be reading from Walt Whitman. Hello. From Children of Adam, to begin with, I'll be reading from Children of Adam, Calamus, which are uh, youngish works, and then uh, one poem from Sands at 70, or Old Age Echoes. And we've only got uh, 10 minutes each, so I'll just go right through, through it. <laughs> Native moments. <clears throat> Native moments, when you come upon me, ah, you are here now. Give me now libidinous joys only. Give me the drench of my passions. Give me life, coarse and rank. Today I go consort with nature's darlings. Tonight, too, I am for those who believe in loose delights. I share the midnight orgies of young men. I dance with the dancers and drink with the drinkers. The echoes ring with our indecent calls. I pick out some low person for my dearest friend. He shall be lawless, rude, illiterate. <clears throat> he shall be one condemned for others by others for deeds done. I will play a part no longer. Why should I exile myself from my companions? Oh, you shun persons, I at least do not shun you. I come forthwith, forthwith in your midst. I will be your poet. I'll be more to you than any of the rest. <laughs> Next, he says, in Paths Untrodden, the, uh, the opening poem in Calamus section, a uh, portion of Leaves of Grass, which Emerson uh, thought he should suppress. In paths untrodden, in the growth by margins of pond waters, escape from the life that exhibits itself, from all the standards hitherto published, from the pleasures, profits, conformities which too long I was offering to feed my soul, clear to me now standards not yet published. <coughs> clear to me that my soul that the soul of the man I speak for rejoices in comrades, here by myself away from the clank of the world, tallying and talk to here by tongues aromatic, 
no longer abashed, for in this secluded spot I can respond as I would not dare elsewhere, strong upon me the life that does not exhibit itself, yet contains all the rest, resolved to sing no songs today but those of manly attachment, projecting them along with that, them along that, projecting them along that substantial life, bequeathing hence types of athletic love, afternoon, this delicious ninth month in my 41st year, I proceed for all who are or have been young men to tell the secret of my nights and days, to celebrate the need of comrades. Then as a political statement, for you, O democracy, come, I will make the continent indissoluble. I'll make the most splendid race the sun ever shone upon. I will make divine magnetic lands with the love of comrades, with a lifelong love of comrades. I will plant companionship thick as trees along all the rivers of America and along the shores of the Great Lakes and all over the prairies. I will make inseparable cities with their arms around each other's necks by the love of comrades, by the manly love of comrades. For you, these for me, O oh, democracy, to serve you, ma femme, for you. For you I am trilling these songs. When I heard at the close of day how my name had been received with plaudits at the Capitol, still it was not a happy night for me that followed. And else when I caroused or when my plans were accomplished, still I was not happy. But the day when I rose at dawn from the bed of perfect health, refreshed, singing, inhaling the ripe breath of autumn, when I saw the full moon in the west grow pale and disappear in the morning light, when I wandered alone over the beach and undressed and undressing bathed, laughing with the cool waters and saw the sun rise, and when I thought how my dear friend, my lover, was on his way coming, oh, then I was happy. Oh, then each breath tasted sweeter. And all that day my food nourished me more, and the beautiful day passed well, and the next day came with and next and the next came with equal joy, and the next at evening came my friend, and with the next at evening came my friend. And that night while all was still I heard the waters roll slowly, continually up the shores. I heard the hissing rustle of the liquid and sands as directed to me, whispering to congratulate me. For the one I love most lay sleeping by me under the same cover in the cool night. In the stillness, in the autumn moonbeams, his face was inclined toward me, and his arm lay light me around my breast, and that night I was happy. City of orgies. <laughs> City of orgies, walks and joys. City whom that I have lived and sung in your midst will one day make you illustrious. Not the pageants of you, not your shifting tableaus, your spectacles repay me, nor the interminable rows of your houses, nor the ships at wharves, nor the processions in the streets, nor the bright windows with goods in them, nor to converse with learned persons or bear my share in the soiree or feasts, 
not these, but as I pass, O Manhattan, your frequent and swift flash of eyes offering me love, offering response to my own, these repay me. Lovers, continual lovers, only repay me. Behold this swarthy face, these gray eyes, this beard, this white wool unclipped about upon my neck, my brown hands in the silent manner of me without charm. Yet comes one, a Manhattanese, and ever at parting kisses me lightly on the lips with robust love. And I on the crossing of the street or on the ship's deck give a kiss in return. We observe that salute of American comrades, land and sea. We are those two natural and nonchalant persons. <laughs> I hear it was charged against me that I sought to destroy institutions. But really, I am neither for nor against institutions. What indeed have I in common with them, or what with the destruction of them? Only, I will establish in the Manhattan and in every city of these states, inland and seaboard, and in the fields and woods, and above every keel, little or large, that dents the water, without edifices or rules or trustees or any argument, the institution of the dear love of comrades. <laughs> we two boys together clinging, one upon the other, one the other never leaving, up and down the roads going, north and south excursions making, power enjoying, Elbows stretching, fingers clutching, armed and fearless, eating, drinking, sleeping, loving, no law less than ourselves owning, sailing, soldiering, thieving, threatening, misers, menials, priests alarming, air breathing, water drinking, on the turf or the sea beach dancing, cities wrenching, ease scorning, statutes mocking, feebleness, chasing, fulfilling our foray. Here, the frailest leaves of me and yet my strongest lasting. Here, I shade and hide my thoughts. I myself do not expose them. And yet, they expose me more than all my other poems. Earth, my likeness. Though you look so impassive, ample, and spheric there, I now suspect that is not all. I now suspect there is something fierce in you eligible to burst forth. For an athlete is enamored of me, and I of him. But toward him there is something fierce and terrible in me eligible to burst forth. I dare not tell it in words, not even in these songs. Sometimes with one I love, I fill myself with rage I, for fear I effuse unreturned love. But now I think there is no unreturned love. The pay is certain, one way or another. I loved a certain person ardently, and my love was not returned. Yet, out of that, I have written these songs. <laughs> Many things to absorb I teach you to help you become élève of mine. Yet if blood like mine not circle in your veins, if you be not silently selected by lovers and do not silently select lovers, of what use is it that you seek to become an eleve of mine? Among the multitude, 
Among the men and women, the multitude, I perceive one picking out, I perceive one picking me out by secrets and divine signs, acknowledging none else, not parent, wife, husband, brother, child, any nearer than I am. Some are baffled, but that one is not. That one knows me. Ah, lover and perfect equal, I meant that you should discover me by so, so I meant that you should discover me so by faint indirections, and I, when I meet you, mean to discover you by the like in you. O you whom I often and silently come, O you whom I often and silently come where you are, that I may be with you, as I walk by, walk by your side or sit near, or remain in the same room with you, Little you know the subtle electric fire that for your sake is playing within me. So that's at the age of 41 or 42. But then old age echoes, last, of many a smutched deed reminiscent, full of wickedness, I, of many a smutched deed reminiscent, of worse deeds capable. Yet I look composedly upon nature drink day and night the joys of life and await death with perfect equanimity because of my tender and boundless love for him I love and because of his boundless love for me. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Our next reader is Jill Johnston, who um, has been writing about art for many, many years in Art News and Art in America and The Village Voice many years ago, but is probably best known for her groundbreaking book, Lesbian Nation. Um, tonight, she will be reading from Virginia Woolf. Welcome, Jill Johnston. This might take me a few minutes. I, I had to uh, <laughs> empty out my uh, wolf library here uh, because uh, I'm sorry, but um, This doesn't even begin to. Uh, uh, my idea here was to uh, trace uh, Virginia's uh, affair with Vita, Vita Sackville West. <coughs> she did. And um, here's a few dates for you to keep in mind. She was born in, uh, Virginia was born 1882. And um, decided not to read from that one. Uh, <laughs> um, she, uh, uh, this is, uh, the, the selection I had here was about her, uh, the childhood, the, her experience of childhood sexual abuse, uh, 
And um, th and there's an excellent book on that subject by Louise DeSalvo called uh, Virginia Woolf, The Impact of Childhood Sexual Abuse on Her Life and Work. And I was going to read this bit from Moments of Being, which is um, on were, were autobiographical writings published um, after she died. Um, uh, Vita Sackville West was 10 years younger. She was born in 1892. And, um, and Virginia Woolf's father died in 1904. Her mother died in 1995. So she was... Uh, 13 when her mother died, 22 when her father died, and she married Leonard Wolf in 1912. So these are all excerpts of mine, mind you. Mind you, these are not uh, excerpts of hers, okay? These are excerpts from her letters, and sometimes there's just, you know, one entry here. Um, uh, actually, when she was uh, about uh, 20, 21, she was in love with Violet Dickinson, a friend of hers. And um, I, I think I'm going to pass up on those entries, too. <laughs> but, uh, 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 I'll get right to the Vita Sackville West stuff. Um, uh, she... Um, Virginia met Vita Sackville West in uh, December 14, 1922, when she was dining with uh, her brother-in-law, Clive Bell, who was married to her sister, Vanessa Bell, the painter. Um, four days later, uh, Virginia dined with Vita at her house in uh, Ebury Street. So these are 1923 entries. We had a surprise visit from the Nicholsons. That's Vita was married to Harold Nicholson. Uh, she is a pronounced sapphist, and May thinks Ethel Sands have an eye on me, old enough, old though I am. Nature might have sharpened her faculties. Uh, she's speaking of Vita's ancestry. All these ancestors and centuries in silver and gold have bred a perfect body. She is stag-like or racehorse-like, save for the face, which pouts and has no very sharp brain. But as a body, hers is perfection. <laughs> now we're in, still in 1924. Uh, uh, sh this is a letter to uh, her brother-in-law, Clyde Bell. Uh, as for gossip, what? Um, blah, blah, blah. And then she says, Dear Vita has the body and brain of a Greek god. Uh, this is still 1924. Uh, this is a letter to Vita. Um, my dear Vita, it is sad that you should be determined to undermine my virtue. Um, but... Uh, here is, uh, this is a letter to, sh where, uh, this is a letter to somebody called Jacques Reverat. Reverat. Uh, well, who is there next? Well, she's gossiping, you know. Well, only a high aristocrat called Vita Sackville West, daughter of Lord Sackville, da uh, daughter of Noel, uh, wife of Harold Nicholson and novelist. But her real claim to consideration is, if I may be so coarse, her legs. <laughs> Oh, they are exquisite. 
uh, running like slender pillars up into her trunk, which is that of a breastless, breastless um, cuirassier, yet she has two children. But all about her is virginal, savage, patrician, and why she writes what she does with complete competency and a pen of brass is a puzzle to me. If I were she, I should merely stride with 11 elk hounds behind me <laughs> through my ancestral woods. She descends from Dorset, Buckingham, Sir Philip Sidney, and the whole of English history, which she keeps stretched in coffins one after another from 1300 to the present day under her dining room floor. This is uh, January, March, 1925, a uh, letter to David Garnett. Um, uh, and why not try Vita Nicholson? She is now, I think, in London. Anyhow, uh, she is of ravishing beauty and commanding presence. And um, this is a letter to that Jacques again. Um, have you any views on loving one's own sex? All the young men are so inclined, and I can't, I can't help finding it mildly foolish, though I have no particular reason. For one thing, all the young men tend to, to, to the pretty and ladylike for some reason at the moment. They paint and powder, which wasn't the style in our day at Cambridge. I think it does imply some clingingness. A tiny lapdog called Sackville West came to see me the other day, and my cook said, who was the lady in the drawing room? He has a voice like a girl's and a face like a Persian cat's, all white and serious with large violet eyes and fluffy cheeks. Well, you can't respect the amours of a creature like that. Um, there's a note here. The, these uh, letters are, uh, are edited by uh, Nigel Nicholson, uh, Vita Sacco West's son, one of her, one of her two, uh, two sons. Um, here, uh, Virginia gives a slightly, this is Nigel speaking, Virginia gives a slightly distorted version of Vita's elopement with uh, Violet Trefusis, who was not a cousin but a friend since childhood. In February 1920, um, they ran away, intending to spend the rest of their lives together, but only got as far as Amiens in France, where their husbands, Harold Nicholson, and Denis Terfusis caught up with them and persuaded them to separate and return. Um, and this is Virginia again. I can't take either of these aberrations seriously. To tell you a secret, I want to incite my lady to elope with me next. See, this is a reference to this other elopement, uh, this former elopement. Then I'll drop down on you and tell you all about it. Um, this is moving on here. Uh, letter to um, d a letter to Vita, 1919. Uh, uh, she's still saying, "My dear Vita," uh, 1925. I have a perfectly romantic and no doubt untrue vision of you in my mind, stamping out the hops in a great vat in Kent, stark naked, brown as a satyr, and very beautiful. Don't tell me this is all illusion. Then this is uh, moving on, and a uh, letter to my dear Vita. The doctor says I may go away. Would you like to me to come to you for a day or two if you are alone before the 20th? Uh, this is at the time, December 25 to January 26, the beginning of their love affair. Uh, <coughs> now she's calling her dearest creature. 
<coughs> these she's addressing her letters to dearest creature um, and um, uh, th this is a note by Nigel Nicholson um, uh, Vita had spent New Year's uh, well wait a minute uh, uh, Clive Bell on some occasion here um, asked Vita whether she had slept with Virginia and Vita hotly denied it uh, now I have a note here in um, and, you know, Nigel Nicholson's um, Portrait of a Marriage, uh, where uh, there's a note on this in here. Um, uh, um, well, uh, all all of this is uh, while you know uh, Vita, as you know Harold Nicholson like men himself and uh, so Vita and Harold uh, married couple are making this exchange on um, on Virginia I guess he's a little worried or he's seemingly worried about the health of Virginia uh, she says um, she likes you she likes me she says she depends on me she is so vulnerable under all her brilliance i do love her but not b s lee meaning backstairsly uh vita to harold i think she's one of the most mentally exciting people i know she hates the wishy-washiness of bloomsbury young men we have made friends by leaps and bounds in these two days i love her but couldn't fall in love with her so don't be nervous harold to vita I'm not really bothered about Virginia, and I think you are probably very good for each other. I only feel that you have not got la main ruse, the, the happy hand in dealing with married couples. Harold DeVita, oh my dear, I do hope that Virginia is not going to be a muddle. It's like, it, it is like smoking over a petrol tank. Vita to Harold, darling, there is no, Vita to Harold, darling, there is no muddle anywhere. I keep on telling you so. You mentioned Virginia. It is simply laughable. I love Virginia, as who wouldn't, but really, my sweet, one's love for Virginia is a very different thing, a mental thing, a spiritual thing, if you like, an intellectual thing, and she aspires, inspires a feeling of tenderness, which is, I suppose, owing to her funny mixture of hardness and softness, the hardness of her mind and her terror of going mad again. She makes me feel protective. Also, she loves me, which flatters and pleases me. Also, I ha since I have embarked on telling you about Virginia, I'm scared to death of arousing physical feelings in her because of the madness. And then she says, uh, to comment on that other note uh, by Virginia, beca uh, besides, Virginia is not the sort of person one thinks of in that way. There is something incongruous and almost indecent in the idea, I have gone to bed with her twice, but that's all. <laughs> okay. Um, Uh, this is 19, this is 1926, uh, no private, uh, this is a letter to, from Virginia to, uh, to, to, to Vita, where she's probably calling her still dear creature, uh, dearest creature. Um, no privacy, always people coming, and no letter from you, why not? Only a scrap and a wild, melancholy, adorable moan from Trieste. No photograph either, goodbye, dearest shaggy creature. Um, and then there's a note uh, here from Vita to Virginia about this. She says, it is incredible how essential to me you have become. Damn you, spoiled creature. I shan't make you love me any the more by giving myself away like this. Um, and then uh, moving on, we have 
this um, letter to uh, a letter to v uh, to Vanessa Bell from Virginia. Vita is now arriving to spend two nights alone with me. Leonard is going back. I say no more. As you are bored by Vita, bored by love, bored by me, and everything to do with me, except Quentin and Angelica, but such has long been my fate, and it is better to meet at open-eyed. Still, the June nights are long and warm, the roses flowering, and the garden full of lust and bees mingling in the asparagus beds. I must go in and tidy up. And... Um, still 1926. Darling Mrs. Nicholson, this is how she's addressing Vita now, uh, I think I won't come on Thursday for this reason. I must get on with writing. You would seduce me completely. Um, like that. And uh, then um, she's calling her Donkey West now for some reason. I don't know. Uh, she says he, she knows she has broken down more ramparts than anyone. Darling Donkey West, uh, will you come at 2.30 to, uh, and then how nice I shall lie on the sofa and be spoilt. But my pain is going already. Uh, was Irene nicer than I am? Uh, then, uh, oh, I'm so sick of teeing, dine, dining, reading, writing and everything except seeing, well, it is you, I admit. Yes, it will be nice. And shall you be very kind to me? Please do. Dearest Vita, please come and bathe me in serenity again. Yes, I am holy and entirely happy. If you could have uncored me, you would have seen every nerve running fire, intense but calm. But why, darling Mrs. N., honorable Mrs. N., insist upon Noel to see me ridiculous, the powder falling, the hairpins dropping, and not a word said in private between us? Is it one of your moonlight Romantic stags barking, old man feeding them from a bucket in the snow, ideas, it shall be considered anyhow. But it's Vita I adore. Um, dearest creature, this is 1927, you make me feel such a brute and I didn't mean to be. One can't regulate the tone of one's voice, I suppose, for nothing I said could in substance make you wretched for even half a second. And that's all there is to it as far as I'm concerned. I'm happy to think you do care, for often I seem old, fretless, fretful, querulous, difficult, and begin to doubt. Um, there's a note here, again, by uh, Nigel Nicholson, that, uh, I, uh, there's, oh yeah, she was having an, uh, Vita was now having an affair with somebody called Mary Campbell, and she was married to Roy Campbell. Uh, Roy had, uh, this is the note by Nigel, uh, Roy Campbell had found out about Vita's affair with his wife and threatened first to kill Mary and then to divorce her. Vita, uh, Vita, dreadfully distressed, told Virginia the whole story. Virginia reproached her for muddling her life and Vita burst into tears. Um, this is uh, 1928. Um, Whoa. Um, well, here's another jealous note. She just says, um, is it a Mary again or a Jenny this time or a Polly? Um, uh, and then um, here's... Uh, well, I won't read that. That's, that's on Sackville West. I wanted to... Uh, uh, there's um, 
telling Vanessa, I mean, we're going to cut all of this. Uh, this is a great bit, I'm sorry. But because there's a very nice uh, note here somewhere by uh, Vita on Um, this is uh, Vita Sackville West on lesbianism in her time. Um, I hold the conviction that as centuries go on, and the sac this is written around 1920, I that, as, that as centuries go on and the sexes become more nearly merged on account of their increasing resemblances, I, I hold the, the conviction that such connections will, to a very large extent, cease to be regarded as merely unnatural and will be understood far better, at least in their intellectual and not of their physical aspect. I believe that then the psychology of people like myself will be a matter of interest, and I believe it will be recognized that many more people of my type do exist than under the present-day system of hypocrisy is commonly admitted. I'm not saying that such personalities and the connections which result from them will not be deplored as they are now, but I do believe that their greater prevalence and the spirit of candor which one hopes will spread with the progress of the world will lead to their recognition if only as an inevitable evil. The first step in the direction of such candor must be taken by the general admission of normal but illicit relations and the facilitation of divorce or possibly even the reconstruction of the system of marriage. I advance, therefore, the perfectly accepted theory that cases of dual personality do exist in which the feminine and the masculine al elements alternately preponderate. I advance this in an impersonal and scientific spirit and claim that I am qualified to speak with the intimacy a professional scientist could acquire only after years of study and indirect information because I have the object of study always to hand in my own heart and can gauge the exact truthfulness of what my own experience tells me. Of course, in concluding, uh, I, I suppose you all know that um, uh, that uh, Vita was a uh, primarily, I mean, she was an active lesbian, put it that way, whereas, of course, Virginia was, um, Virginia, uh, Virginia was not really, you know, okay. So, I mean, she, uh, she was, uh, uh, you know, she didn't. Uh, she wasn't an active lesbian the way Vita was. You know. You know. You all know that. reader is going to bring us at least a couple of decades into the future in, in the letter he will read, and he is Gary Indiana, who is the author of several novels and a collection of essays and many plays, and um, is working on a new novel right now, which will come out next year called Resentment. Gary will be reading from a letter of William Burroughs to Allen Ginsberg.
one letter of Allen Ginsberg. This was written in, uh, was <coughs> sent to Allen from Tangier in 1956. Um, I'm not really such a great historian myself. I just um, picked this one because the Pope was here today. Dear Alan, I don't see our roles reversed exactly, but expanded and altered on both sides. I have entered a period of change more drastic than adolescence or early childhood. I live in a constant state of routine. I'm getting so far out, one day I won't come back at all. I can't take time to go into all my mystic experiences, which I have whenever I walk out the door. There is something special about Tangier. It is the only place when I am there I don't want to be anyplace else. No stasis horrors here. And the beauty of this town that consists in changing combinations. Venice is beautiful, but it never changes. It is a dream congealed in stone, and it is someone else's dream. The final effect to me is nightmarish. Example, sky, supersonic, orgone, blue, warm wind, a stone stairway leading up to the old town. Coming down the stairs, a very dark Arab boy with a light purple shirt. I get average of 10 very attractive propositions a day. My latest number is Spanish, 16, with a smile that hits you right in the nuts. I mean that pure, uncut boy stuff, that young male innocence. American boys are not innocent because they lack experience. <laughs> innocence is inseparable from depravity. <laughs> you can lay him when you get here. <laughs> Everyone else has. That child innocence, but what technique and virtuosity? Oh, la, la. Now I got myself agitated. <laughs> Must have him today instead of tomorrow. Incidentally, the one reason I get so many propositions is I'm being the most eligible queer in Greater Tangier. Everyone knows how generous I was with Kiki. And I got a rep for being a perfect gentleman in every sense of the word. I work when I can sit still long enough or when I get time out from fucking. Actually, Interzone has taken complete shape. If I only had a tape recorder, I could finish it in a month. And close selections, which will indicate where I am. Finale is they set off a new atom bomb at the 4th of July celebration and destroy the world. Getting quite friendly with Paul Bowles. He is really a charming person. New quarters are superb. My room opens onto a garden, no maids to bother me. A private entrance on a quiet street. I don't see how anyone could be happier than I am right now. I mean, this is it. I am not saving myself for anything. I hope to God I don't have to leave Tangier. Of course, the south of Spain is terrific. They are all Republicans, even the fuzz. The old folks sit in the kitchen drinking wine while you lay their boy in the bedroom. Nice informal atmosphere, you dig? <laughs> I mean, I won't exactly be withering on the vine if I do have to leave. But Tangier is my dream town. I did have a dream ten years ago of coming into a harbor and knowing that this was the place where I desired to be. 
Just the other day, rowing around in the harbor, I recognized it as my dream bay. I wish you would come on here before you fritter away your loot. By all means, bring Jack and Peter. I assure you, I will not be jealous. In fact, jealousy is one of the emotions of which I am no longer capable. <laughs> Self-pity is also impossible for me. <laughs> you know what is wrong with it? Self-pity is a symptom of a divided ego, split into a pitied and a pitier. <laughs> if your ego is intact, you can't pity yourself. I discovered this in a state of complete despair a few days ago. I woke up one morning to find that my ass and environs was a bright purple red color, overtook by my nemesis, you might say. <laughs> so after a session with medical books and the Red Cross, I was convinced I had that awful virus venereal disease, lymphogranuloma, where your ass turns purple and seals up, only <laughs> deigning to emit an occasional purulent discharge. I went home and dosed myself with antibiotics. That disease is difficult to cure, though areomycin has proven effective in some cases. Then I began to cry and roll around and biting my knuckles in complete despair. Despair unifies the ego. Self-pity is impossible. Did you know that tears rid the body of poisonous waste like sweat or urine? And jaundice, your tears are bright yellow. In short, grief or despair causes metabolic poisons to accumulate. The old idea that someone who is greatly afflicted must cry or die has a sound metabolic basis. Anywho, I never see anyone take on the way I did for hours and hours, repeating over and over, take it away, take it away. So the next day I go to the doctor, he takes a look and purses his lips and says, yes, you have a rather severe case of ringworm, athlete's foot. Then he looked at me over his glasses and smiles discreetly, and there seems to have been a certain amount of a chafing. <laughs> so I used my, my Coctin, this is sick after that, and my ass is no longer purple. Seems to me I got my despair revelations at bargain basement price. I mean the self-pity insight was only one angle. Another was I found out how emphatically I disapprove of stealing or any criminal activities. I mean criminal, not illegal, whether performed by criminals or by police or by anybody. That is, crimes against property and person of others, brainwashing, thought control, etc., is the vilest form of crime against the person of another. There is no greater disaster than the confusion of ethics and legality. It is the curse of the Western world, the substitution of law, that is, force, for instinctive feeling for others. Once this is done, on the one hand, anything legal is right and such monstrosities as Nazism and Communism are loosed on the world. On the other hand, anything you can get by with is all right too, which is the lesser because self-limiting evil of ordinary criminality. Only America could have set up such a perversion as the concept that the good are dull and the wicked charming. Al Cap says, good is better than evil because it is nicer. I say it's better because it's more interesting. Evil is dull, about as glamorous as a cancer. And evil men are dull, as I am sure Himmler was dull. But I doubt if I could ever have learned this in the States. And I used to admire gangsters. Good God. I remember seeing in the paper those gangsters who conspired to throw acid in Reisel's face and thinking quite spontaneously, what a bunch of shits they are. 
Well, I was never one to beat around in a bush. I mean, enough of this silly lovemaking, take your clothes off. Al, I am a fucking saint. That is, I have been fucked by the Holy Ghost and knocked up with the Immaculate Void. I'm the third coming, me, and don't know if I can do it again. So stand by for the revelation. Christ, that cheap mountebank, that bush leaguer, you think I'd demean myself to commit a miracle? That's what Christ should have said on a cross when the citizen said, make with a miracle and save your own ass. He should have said, I wouldn't demean myself. The show must go on. <laughs> he, was a, he always was one to miss a cue. <laughs> I recall when we were doing an impersonation act in Sodom, and that is one cheap town. Strictly from hunger. Well, this citizen, this fucking Philistine who wandered in from Podunk Ball or someplace calls me a fucking fruit right on the floor. And I said to him, 3,000 years in show business and I always keep my nose clean. Besides, I don't have to take any shit off any uncircumcised cocksucker. Like I say, miracles is the cheapest trick in the industry. Some people got no class to them. That one should have stood in Carney. Step right up, Marks and Marquesses, and bring the little Marks, too. Good for young and old, man and beast. The one and only legit son of man will cure a young boy's clap with one hand. By contact alone, folks. Create marijuana with the other whilst walking on water and squirting wine out of his ass. Now, don't crowd too close. You are subject to be irradiated by the sheer charge of this character. Buddha, a notorious metabolic junkie, makes his own, you dig? In India, where they got no sense of time, the man is often a month late. Now, let me see, is that the second or third monsoon? I got like a meat and catch a pour about, more or less. So you dig these junkies sitting around in a lotus posture, waiting on the man. So Buddha says, I don't have to take this sound out. By God, metabolize my own junk. Man, you can't do that. The revenuers will swarm all over you. No, they won't. I got a gimmick. See, I'm a fucking holy man as of now on out. Jeez, boss, what an angle. Now, some citizens, when they make with the new religion, really wig. No class to them. Besides, they are subject to be lynched because who wants somebody hanging around being better than other folks? What do you want to do, Jack? Give people a bad time? So we got to play it cool, you dig? Cool. We got to take it a leap. We got to take it a leap. Basura. Wait till the morning edition hits the souks. I'm blasting amalgamated wide open. Give them hell, kid. I'm in your corner. Gus, when the roll is called up, yonder, you'll be there if I have to louse up the universe. I won't forget you, Gussie. I won't forget what you've done for me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That'll be ten clams in cash. Confucius, who he? Lousy. They scratch him already. So now we got the place cleaned up a bit. I'm going to make with the living word. Everybody in this fucking curved universe and anybody says it's not curved is blaspheming the immaculate fact and the first prophet of fact, Einstein, one of my stooges, you dig? Everybody and everything is in this universe together. If one explodes, we all explode. That thermodynamic drag brings everybody down. Fuck your neighbor. He may like it. And I want you fellas to control your most basest instincts, which is the yen to control, coerce, violate, invade, annihilate by any means whatsoever anybody else's physical or psychical person. Anybody wants to go climb into someone else and take over is no better than a fucking control addict. 
He should kick his noisome habit instead of skulking around with his bare ass hanging out, lousing up the universe. Be it known that such nameless assholes will suffer a painless doom. And remember, when the control yen rips through your bones like a great black wind, you have connected for pure evil. Not the glamorous bitch, but the cancerous, rotting drag who says, I have nothing to offer but my sores. So when you feel that, yen brother, and everybody in the industry must feel it, and say, how can I make it without the stuff? I say, open the door, and the whole universe will rush in with the immaculate fix. And you will look the man straight in his discs, power pushes don't need eyes, and say, Gimpy, take up thy shit and walk. Go on the nod and dream of a square universe. I stand with the facts. I mean, enough of these gooey saints with that look of pathic dismay as if they were being fucked and pretending not to pay it any mind. He who denies himself will shit sure deny others. Leave us have no more square saints. Get a typewriter, why aren't you? This letter is like a Mayan codus. Neither of you write good anywho. It reads like a drunken newscaster. Remember at last a sentence I can read. Yes, Peter, I live on a hill overlooking the bay in the most beautiful city in the world, or at least it's always young and fair to me. You've got cockroaches while I wake up this morning with rat shit on my sheets. I am subject to be took advantage of by rats. When I lived in the other house, I used to get my exercise killing rats with a cane in the patio. The bastards eat babies, you dig, so I put them to the sword or whatever. No compromise with the unbelieving pricks. Now, I haven't issued a sura on cockroaches yet, since there are none here. You boys will just have to piece out the odds without a, you know, the last word on roaches. Want to talk to you about the nut house, schizophrenia being like one of my hobbies, you might say. And I got theories about it like I got about most everything. Don't be responsible, Peter. That sentence sounds like you were was applying for a position. You know the routine citizens put down, like, I'm a young man with clean habits. I don't juice and I don't mainline. If what's on my mind is on your mind, you must be kid simple. If so, you are coming to the right place. Now look here, don't worry about my sensitiveness. There'll be no Indian rope trick put down. Nobody disappears in Tangier. Now look, I feel a sura coming on, the subject of roaches. I mean, you got to draw the line someplace. Like I should go around with a purple ass. I don't want to kill them cute little ringworms already. They have committed an unspeakable crime in violating my person without so much as a buy your leave. Germs got no class to them. And the evilest of them all are the virus. So bone lazy they aren't even hardly alive yet. Fucking transitional bastards. So I say cockroaches can live for all I care, but not in my quarters. I didn't send for no cockroaches. They is invading my privacy and I by God won't stand still for it. The prophet has yacked. I'm off to this restaurant where all the waiters and the cook are Arabian fruits who keep feeling up the clientele. <laughs> Sign over the bar. Employee must wash hands after goosing the clients. <laughs> Enclosed sample of interest zone. This is first rough draft. I have written about 50 pages. A boy last night and another this noon. I am declaring a two-day sex land. Bless you, my children. Love from Pop Lee, your friendly prophet, Bill. Don't go to Mexico. Come right here, right now, while you have the loot. Tangier is the place. Why wait?
Thanks, Gary. That was really wonderful. The, the borough's letters were just um, issued in paperback and are as fresh and wonderful as any fiction William has ever written. Our next reader is um, Heather Lewis, who wrote a novel called House Rules, which will be out in paperback this fall. She has just completed another novel and is working on a third. She's going to be reading uh, from kind of an odd piece of Jean Reese's, and she'll be reading it with Jane Perkins, who's a performance artist and is currently writing a novel. So I'm Heather, and I'm very grateful to Jane for agreeing to do this with me on short notice. Um, this piece is from a diary that Jean Reese wrote when she was about 60 years old. Um, this was in about, she dates it 1947, others have dated it 1952. Um, her third husband was in jail at this time, uh, and she herself had spent uh, the last several years being put on trial for various assault charges, um, drunken disorderlies, eight times. Um, and she was also briefly imprisoned in the psychiatric wing of Holloway, Holloway Prison um, during one of, as a result of one of these trials. Um, so this period finds her at the after uh, years of, of this kind of struggle. Um, and she's sober at this time and, and beginning to write again after a long time uh, when she's not writing, when she hasn't been writing. Uh, and in this piece, she puts herself on trial. Um, and so that's, Jane is going to be the questioner, and I'm going to be the voice of Jean Reese. But the, the whole thing is from her diary. Um, so it begins, from a diary at the rope maker's arms. Death before the fact. This time, I must not blot a line. No revision, no second thoughts. Down it shall go. Already I am terrified. I have none of the tools of my trade. No row of pencils, no pencil sharpener, no drink. The standing jump. The trial of Jean Reese. Someone told me that after long torture, the patient, subject, prisoner, whatever the word is, answers every question with, I do not know. NB, be precise, no one told you. You saw it in a film, naturally. Did someone perhaps tell you that was true? No one had to told me, tell me. I know it is true. Then there are still some things you know. Yes. So your first statement was not correct. No. By the way, who is asking these questions? The counsel for the prosecution. And will there be a counsel for the defense? I suppose so. And a judge? I do not know. Yesterday at the cinema in the one in threes watching the usual thing, Biff, bang, why you dirty double crossing, bang, biff. I am so sick of fights. It is a funny sort of, I cannot remember the word, anodyne. Lovely, lovely word, anodyne. Sitting in the darkness in the one and threes, bang, biff, revolver shots, surrounded by small boys, infants in arms who wail, fat mothers, old age pensioners. After a long speech from the screen, small boy, I want to know what the lady was saying. Mother, don't know, ducks. Small boy, what was the gentleman saying, Mom? Mother, you keep quiet or you'll get smacked. 
You can't do this to me, you dirty double-crossing. Quotations. The most beautiful songs are the most desperate, and I know of some immortal ones that are nothing but sobs. It doesn't make me cry anymore. Something that still persists? Wait, one more. You are seeking a new world. I know of one that is always new because it is eternal. O conquistadors, conquerors of the Americas, mine is an advantage more difficult, more heroic than yours. At the cost of a thousand sufferings worse than yours, at the cost of a long death before the fact, I shall conquer this world that is ever new, ever young. Dare to follow me and you will see. Meditations? St. Teresa. No more quotations. Paul Moran says in one of his books that English novelists always start with a quotation, the text before the sermon. I found that witty. Trial continued. Do you believe in God? I do not know. In human love? Yes. Still? Yes. In humanity? No. How can you believe in human love and not in humanity? Because I believe that sometimes human beings can be more than themselves. Come, come, this is very bad. Can't you do better than that? What you really mean is that human beings can be taken over, possessed by something outside, something greater, and that love is one of these manifestations. Then, my dear, you must believe in gods or the gods, in the devil, in the whole bag of tricks. No, that is not what I mean. Then what? I cannot say it. I have not the words. Say. I cannot. You must. It is in myself. What is? All good, evil, love, hate, life, death, beauty, ugliness. And in everyone. I do not know everyone. I only know myself. And others? I do not know them. I see them as trees walking. There you are. Didn't take long, did it? Jesus Christ said, or is supposed to have said, the kingdom of God is within you. That's what you meant, isn't it? Perhaps. I do not know. Where is all this leading? What use is it? I suggest that my case is already proved. Members of the jury, did you, in your youth, have great love and pity for others? Yes, I, I think so. Especially for the poor and unfortunate? Yes. Were you able to show this? I think I could not always. I was very clumsy. No one told me. What? No one told me anything that mattered. Excuse, of course. Well, isn't it an excuse? It is the truth. I suppose you will admit that the things that matter are difficult to tell. Yes. Impossible, perhaps. Perhaps some of them. Is it true, is it untrue that you are cold and withdrawn? It is not true. Did you make great efforts to, uh, shall we say, establish contacts with other people? I mean, friendships, love affairs, so on. Yes, not friendships very much. Did you succeed? Sometimes, for a time. Didn't last? No. Whose fault was that? Mine, I suppose. You suppose? Better answer. I am tired. I learned everything too late. Everything was always one jump ahead of me. The phrase is, I do not, is not, I do not know, but I have nothing to say. The trouble is, I have plenty to say. Not only that, I am bound to say it. Bound? I must. Why? 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 I must write. If I stop writing, my life will have been an abject failure. 
It is that already to other people, but it could be an abject failure to myself. I will not have earned death. Earned death. Sometimes, not often, a phrase will sound in my ear clearly as if spoken aloud by someone else. That was one phrase, you must earn death. A reward? Yes. Any other phrase? Yes, you will be helped. You are aware, of course, that what you are writing is childish. Has been said before, also, it is dangerous under the circumstances. Yes, most of it is childish, but I have not written for so long that all I can force myself to do is write to write. To write, I must trust that out of that will come the pattern, the clue that can be followed. Why is all this dangerous? Because I have been accused of madness. But if everything is in me, good, evil, and so on, so must strength be in me, if I know how to get at it. This is the way? I think so. All right. But be damn careful not to leave this book about. Thanks. Thanks. Our next reader is Jaime Manrique, who um, is a poet, having won Columbia's National Poetry Award, but he's best known in the States uh, as being a fiction writer. Most recently, Latin Moon in Manhattan came out. He has just completed a new collection of novellas and short stories called Twilight at the Equator, and Jaime will be reading from the memoir and letters of Manuel Puig. going to um, do tonight is, is read from um, a, a memoir I, I wrote of Manuel Puig. This is a long piece, so I've condensed it into a few pages. And what I want to do here is sort of give you an idea of um, what, what he looked like, what kind of person he was, and uh, also to give you a sense of his life and the circumstances um, surrounding his death. Um, uh, Manuel Puig, of course, is most famous for having written um, Betrayed by Rita Hayworth, um, Heartbreak Tango, and Kiss of the Spider Woman, which are considered his masterpieces. But I think another masterpiece was the, the creation of his persona. And um, so I'm, I'm going to read a little bit about um, this, this memoir. Manuel Puig was one of the most effeminate men I've ever, I've ever known. I met him in 1977 in a fiction workshop at Columbia University. I had been infatuated with him from the time I read his first novel, Betrayed by Rita Hayworth, the headshot on the editions of his books in Spanish where he appeared laughing, a mane of black hair swept back by the wind, had given me a romantic crush on him. In that photograph, he looked like a young but more refined Marcello Mastroianni. In person, he turned out to be more theatrical than Greta Garbo. He had the same grand operatic gestures. Like Garbo's, his eyes were a tool, a weapon, not just organs for seeing, 
but for expressing what he saw. Like the great diva, he arched his eyebrow, the left one, to indicate pain, disdain, despair. The eyebrow was a curtain raised or lowered to expose eyes alive with fire, eyes that could warm you or make you feel faint with their coldness. He had what in some circles is known as Betty Davis eyes. Openly homosexual in public, in private he was totally outrageous, always referring to himself as this woman. To all the famous writers of the Latin American boom, he gave the name of female movie stars. The dignified Jorge Luis Borges was Norma Shearer. Yeah. <clears throat> and of the Mexican novelist Carlos Fuentes, he said, like Eva Gardner, glamour surrounds her, but can she act? Um, anyway, so I'll read and then I'll, I'll talk a little bit, I'll, I'll comment because the memoir is, is kind of long. So um, I became his friend. In the fall of 1978, the painter Bill Sullivan introduced Manuel to a scientist friend. Manuel was, was fascinated by this man primarily because he was from Baghdad. Manuel was essentially someone who yearned to be seduced by the exotic and by romance. Growing up in a dusty hamlet in the Pampas, he yearned for greenery and glamour. <clears throat> um, in 1979, I was back in Bogota where Manuel wrote me mentioning his, his desire to visit Colombia. When he arrived in Bogota, several things became clear. That he was deeply hurt by the failure of the love affair that later was transformed into the fiction of eternal curse on the reader of these pages. And, it, and that he was crushed by how badly Kiss of the Spider Woman had been received by the critics. In the Sunday New York Times, Robert Cooper had panned it. He'll never uh, lift that one up. Uh, in Bogota, mobs of adoring fans came to see him, to see him read and talk. Bogota's intellectuals, however, stayed away. It became obvious to me that the literary establishment, full of closet homosexuals, could not forgive a major author of the boom for coming out with Kiss of the Spider Woman, a gay novel. Manuel was extremely modest. He thought wearing a tie was giving people a bad example, and he dressed in clothes he might have bought in a second-hand store. Whenever we were invited to a beautiful home, he would pause before entering and say, rich people's home. He was proud of his lower middle class background. He often told me, I'm so thankful I was born with the drive of a middle class girl. He was also very shy at parties. Um, this is an anecdote. We went to a party here in New York for the painter um, Neil Welliver. The, the party was at um, uh, the editor, um, um, Carol Southern. And um, we got to the party and, and we went into the, this room to um, um, take our, our coats off. And um, uh, in the room, there was a print of uh, Rita Hayworth by um, the um, um, painter Richard Hamilton, the pop, um, British pop artist. And uh, Manuel was so, um, um, you know, Rita Hayworth, of, of course, was very important to him. And when he saw the print, um, 
you know, he decided that he didn't really want to be in the party. He wanted to stay in that room. And all, that, all night long we sat there. Eventually at the end, after a couple of hours of, of just talking, I said, Manuel, um, you know, uh, John Ashbury is here and, and I'm sure he would like to meet you. And uh, Manuel had very strange ideas about everything. And he said, well, you know how poets are. They don't know anything. And uh, anyway, in, in late uh, 1979, he uh, moved to uh, Rio de Janeiro. And he brought his mother to Rio, and they lived next door to each other. He resumed his relationship with a married construction worker he had met many years before. I saw him again in New York. He looked rejuvenated, healthy, tan, slim. Strutting his figure, he'd say, touch it, it's real woman's flesh. <laughs> he wrote a novel in Portuguese, Blood of Requited Love. In a, later, in a letter dated March 28, 1985, he expressed surprise at the poor reception the book received. I'll read from the letter. Dear Jaime, little daughter from Gotham, how are you? And then he starts talking about the novel. The novel has been received with a kind of mysterious rejection. Here in Brazil, it was ignored. Could it be they are afraid to get hot over such a macho? Of the film of Spider-Woman, I don't know anything. The script is bad, but a miracle could occur. A movie of Puis Angelic was made in Argentina in 1982, a true horror. Speaking of Argentina, a little before the military left three months before, my books entered the country, especially Kiss of the Spider-Woman, which had never been sold there. Well, it's been more than a year and a half and there hasn't yet appeared one single critical review, neither of praise nor rejection. What do you make out of that? All this despite that for years now the book has appeared constantly in courses of Latin American literature everywhere, and a lot of ink has been spilled both for and against it in hundreds of newspapers. What shocks me is the unanimous silence, nobody saying a word. Truly amazing. My country has terror of the mysteries of the spirit. In 1985, Hector Babenko's movie version of Kiss of the Spider Woman opened to considerable success. Uh, Puig became again more famous than he had ever been. All his books were reprinted again. Finally, he became uh, financially secure. Yet he hated the movie. Of William Hurt's celebrated performance, Manuel said, La Hurt is so bad, she probably will win an Oscar. <laughs> and sh she did. So, uh, so. Movies, not literature, were his first love. In an interview for a Colombian newspaper, he said the three main influences on his work were Greta Garbo, the films of Ernst Lubitsch and Freud. There was a typo in the newspaper and Freud came out as Fried. Manuel was delighted because he said that Arthur Fried, who produced the most demented of Busby Berkeley's musicals, <laughs> was also one of, uh, one of his major influences. <laughs> in 1987, Barner College held a, a week-long celebration of his work and I spent some time with him on the last day. At the closing reception, there were hundreds of women who wanted their picture taken next to him. Many women adored him because in interview after interview, 
he talked about how it was the masculine principle that was responsible for war and for destruction. He was an impassioned believer in the anima. In, in, in July 1990, I heard on national public radio the news of Manuel Puig's death in Cuernavaca, where he had moved eight months before. The New York Times obituary was filled with bewildering information. It claimed among his survivors two sons, Javier Labrada and Agustin Garcia Hill. The two sons were obviously two daughters. Because of this obituary, however, many people who didn't know him assumed he had been heterosexual. Soon after Puig's death, he became a kind of literary Evita Perón. The Cuban author Reinaldo Arenas, a friend and neighbor who was himself dying of AIDS, insisted he knew firsthand that Manuel had died of AIDS complication. So I decided I would travel to Mexico to try to find out what had happened to Manuel. I called this, this, this um, Javier Labrada and made an appointment to meet with him. And, uh, and I said, well, um, so why, 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 why did you uh, tell the press that, that you were Manuel's son? And this was Labrada's deadpan explanation. Rita, Manuel, had two daughters, Yasmin, Agustin Garcia Hill, and Rebecca, Becky, myself. I am the daughter by Orson Welles, and Yasmin is the daughter by the Aga Khan. <laughs> I inherited Rita's brains and my father's figure. He told me that Manuel was careful not to use the feminine in front of his mother, referring to himself, that sometimes when Manuel's mother was watching a movie at home, Manuel would stand behind her, and unbeknownst to her, would dance Rita Hayward's put the blame on main number from Gilda. <laughs> I mentioned what rankled me the most. Had Manuel Ashes been returned to Argentina after death, Threats were made when the Buenos Aires affair was published and later Kiss of the Spider Woman was banned. He refused to return home even when he lived for 10 years next door in Brazil. Mommy was an atheist, Javier said. Mommy was cremated and I kept her ashes for several months. The best way I can answer you, your question, he said, is to say that I've smoked many cigars in my life. Perhaps what returned to Argentina were my cigar ashes. Perhaps mommy's ashes were scattered by me all along Orchidia Street, which she loved so much. So the next day I decided that I would go to Cuernavaca to see the, the house where, where Manuel had lived the last few months of his life. And um, it was um, um, an incredible, it is an incredible mansion and, and uh, um, um, on three um, levels with um, um, uh, this Olympic sized swimming pool and and his studio was the size of a Soho loft, and it was just extraordinary. And he had planted hundreds and hundreds of bushes of gardenias and and, and begonias, and and um, and this is what he did at the, at the very end of his life with all his the, the last few months. And um, he actually um, died um, um, two days after the studio had been um, had been finished. Um, when I was in the studio, uh, in, in the study, I'm, I'm sorry, in the study, not the studio, the study, um, I was looking through the piles of books there, and there were two piles of small telephone notebooks on, the, on one of the tables, and they were marked diary. And um, so this, is, this was Manuel's version of a diary. This is what the kind of journal he kept. Opening one at random, I saw that for January 10th, 1976, he listed, they drive by night, 
a date with Judy. Nancy goes to Rio and the Stephen Sondheim musical Pacific Overtures. Most of the days he listed three or four movies or entertainments. And this was, he kept, these were his diaries and there are, you know, like hundreds of these little books he kept. So when I was there, the groundskeeper came in, Adam, Adam Mendiolo Garcia, and he had been Manuel's uh, chauffeur and gardener. And um, then he, he began to, uh, to talk about Manuel and uh, what he told me about the last days of Manuel um, was in, uh, in contradiction to what one of the daughters had told me. And this is, this is more or less his version. And I want to uh, tell you that um, when I reduced this memoir, uh, I printed it this morning, and I, on the way to New York this afternoon on the, in the train, I realized that one of the pages was missing. And then I thought, maybe she doesn't want me to read this part, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, I, fortunately, a friend of mine had a copy of the memoir, so I'll read from this, and then a, little, a couple of paragraphs from the memoir. It was then that Don Adan started to reminisce about Manuel. He talked about how he would drive Manuel into town to go to the, to the bank. Don Manuel would wear these old sandals, and I'd say, Don Manuel, you can't go into town like that. You have to put on a pair of good shoes. And he'd say, but I have no good shoes. Don Adan's version of the accounts contradicted much of what Labrada had told me. On Monday, July 16th, Manuel began having pains, chills, vomiting, and diarrhea. By Wednesday, his condition had deteriorated, so a doctor was called. The doctor recommended that Manuel be taken right away to a hospital. Manuel was so weak at this point that Don Adan had to carry him in his arms to the car. X-rays revealed that his gallbladder needed to be removed. The operation was performed. When the anesthesia wore off, Manuel was delirious and very agitated. He started acting irrationally, pulling out the IVs from his arms. Since Manuel wouldn't remain still, it was decided to strap him down to the bed. And this is what um, Don Adan um, did his version. Um, the following day, the doctors called Don Adan outside the room and asked him if Manuel was homosexual. Don Adan became irate. You know how Don Manuel was, he said to me. I was furious. I couldn't believe their lack of delicacy. It was then that I pressed him. Did, did they ask you if he was homosexual because they told you Manuel had AIDS? Don Adan slumped against the wall. His face sank in his chest, and staring at the floor, he remained silent. He seemed so shaken that I couldn't ask any more questions. After a while, with his head lowered, but his tone changing now to searing anger, he exploded. The honor of the hospital was very bad to Don Manuel. The things I could say if I wanted to talk, but what for? Don Manuel had great difficulty breathing. His mouth was open all the time. I would give him drops of water and try to close his mouth. His tongue began to stick out. He was very dry, and then it turned green. I begged him to open his throat so he could breathe. I was outside his room at 3.30 a.m. on Tuesday when the doctor called me. He said, did you know Manuel Puig? I nodded. He's dead, the doctor said. I went in. He was in bed with his eyes wide open, staring at the lamp above his head. 
He looked as if he had been spooked at the last moment. I closed his eyes. We chatted for a while longer and then stepped out into the luminous afternoon. The smell of the gardenias was inebriating and I commented on it. At night, when they all open up, there is such a sweet smell all over the house, he said. Sometimes I walk through the rooms late at night when everything is quiet and I think about when Don Manuel and his mother were here and I become so nostalgic. After I left the house, I went by the hospital because I wanted to see this hospital where, where Manuel had died. And it was very, um, it was a very, even by third world standards, it was a very shabby place. And, um, you know, I couldn't help but think that Manuel was hiding something when he had chosen to go there. Anyway, I returned to Mexico City. I asked for the doctors, but it was a Sunday, so he wasn't, the, do the doctor who had uh, seen Manuel wasn't there or any of the nurses. So I returned to Mexico City and decided that I would go back the next day and try to find out you know, exactly of, you know, what he had died of. But the next day, I woke up ready to return to Cuernavaca to talk to the doctors at the hospital. But as the morning wore on, I balked. I felt that if Manuel had tried so desperately to protect his privacy, I should respect his wishes. Garbo is reported to have said, I don't care if I die if Garbo lives. Puig had obviously wanted to orchestrate the final chapter of his life. Like Garbo, he wanted to be remembered healthy, slim, youthful, and handsome. That night, I read his play, Mystery of the Rose Bouquet. It's about a sick woman who's obsessed with death. The action takes place entirely in an exclusive clinic. And the only other character is a nurse who's hired to somehow cajole the patient into eating. In his last few lines, the play took on a poignant meaning that I found quite impossible to ignore. The patient says, tonight, you have to decide to serve science or love. Will it be the bustling activity of the hospital ward or the waiting in a garden, languishing, sunset after sunset, making yourself dizzy with the scent of jasmine. Reading these words, I could almost smell the 400 bushes of gardenias that Manuel had planted in the house in Cuernavaca across from his living room. Then I thought, in the last eight months of his life, Manuel had withdrawn behind closed doors because he had been too busy building his first and his last home in this world. Thank you. Thanks, Jaime. Did he have a name for you? Catherine McKinley is our next reader. Catherine McKinley recently edited Afrikeet, a black lesbian anthology, which um, is out on Doubleday. She is a writer whose work has appeared in Essence, Emerge, Ms., and Black Women in America. She's been the recipient of the Audrey Lorde Estate Grant for an emerging black lesbian writer. And she'll be reading um, from and about Lorraine Hansberry. Welcome. Please find and close the money order for $2. I should like to receive as many of your back issues and that amount, as that amount will cover. 
In the event $2 is in excess of the cost of six issues, well, fine. Those few cents may stand as a mere down payment towards sizable don donations. For me, that is. I know already that I shall be sending to you. I'm glad as heck that you exist. You are obviously people and, I'm sorry. <laughs> you are obvi obviously serious people and I feel that women, without wishing to foster any strict separatist notions, homo or hetero, indeed have a need for their own publications and organizations. Our problems, the, hum the human race. Rightly or wrongly, I could not help but be encouraged and relieved by one of the almost subsidiary points under point one of your declaration of purpose, to advocate a mode of behavior and dress acceptable to society. As one raised in a cultural experience, I am a Negro, where those within were and are forever lecturing to their fellows about how to appear acceptable to the dominant social group. I know somehow about the shallowness of such a view as an end in itself. What ought to be clear is that one is oppressed or discriminated against because one is different, not wrong or bad somehow. This is perhaps the bitterest of the entire pill. However, as a matter of facility, of expediency, one has to take a critical view of revolutionary attitudes, which in spite of the basic truth I have mentioned above, may tend to aggravate the problems of a group. I have long since passed that period when I feel per personal discomfort at the sight of an ill-dressed or illiterate Negro. Social awareness has taught me where to lay the blame. Someday I expect the, quote, discreet lesbian will not turn her head on the streets at the sight of the, quote, butch, strolling hand in hand with her friends in their trousers and definitive haircuts. But for the moment, it still disturbs. It creates an impossible area for discussion with one's most enlightened, to use a hopeful term, heterosexual friends. Thus, I agree with the inclusion of the point in your declaration to the degree of wanting to comment on it. I'm impressed with the general tone of your articles. The most serious fault at this juncture is that there simply is too little. Just a little afterthought. Considering Mattachine, Belitis, One, all seem to be cropping up on the West Coast rather than here, where a vigorous and active gay set almost bump up against one another in the streets. What is in the air out there? Pioneers still? Or a tougher circumstance which inspires battle? Would like to hear speculation, lighthearted or otherwise. Signed, LHN, New York, New York. In close, you will find a money order for $5, which is to help make good a so far neglected earlier promise of financial support. With the last two copies of the publication, I am more convinced than ever of the depth and sincerity and dignity you people are determined to pursue your work with. I cannot tell you how encouraging it is. From where you are getting the energy and courage is a, something of a mystery to me, but please know it begins to inspire similar qualities in those who read, who read the latter. I feel I'm learning to think all over again. I want to leap into the question raised in Nancy Osborne's so very important bit on heterosexually married lesbians. I am one of these, incidentally. I was equally interested in Marion Bradley's contributions on that theme and the current issue, though frankly I understood what she was saying far less. I thought the piece was of serious and intelligent intentions, but made some rather precarious suggestions. With the best circumspect motivations, I am sure, it does seem to me that Miss Bradley misstates the problem of the homosexual woman, married or otherwise. So, so crucially as to almost approach the comical. Isn't the problem of the married lesbian 
woman that of an individual who finds that despite her conscious will, oftentimes she's inclined to have her most intense emotional and physical reactions towards, directed towards other women, quite beyond any comparative thing she may have felt for her husband, whatever her sincere affection for him. And isn't that quite the problem? How one quite admits that to oneself and to one's husband? And isn't it necessary to state it so before we can pretend to discuss it? I'm suggesting here that perhaps it is pat and even unfair to suggest that all that remains for the married woman already nursing her frustrations and confusions is somehow to get rid of her self-pity and self-excuses and make a, quote, happy marriage without in any way denying her nature. I'm afraid that homosexuality, whatever its origins, is far more real than that, far more profound in the demand it makes. Otherwise, it could hardly deserve to be a call to be called a problem at all. But this is but a kernel of speculative embryonic ideal improperly introduced here. And this letter is signed LHN, New York, New York. Um, these are two excerpts of, excerpts from two anonymous letters that were sent um, to the latter, which is a publication of Daughters of Belitis in May and August of 1957. Um, these letters so matched the curiosity and the intellectual rigor and earnestness and even the language of many of um, Lorraine Hansberry's writing. Before the opening of the ra uh, raising. Hansberry's death, she wrote, a great deal has been written about this woman, but most of what she was, is, and did in the historical sense can be summed up by saying that in March 1959, her first play, A Raisin in the Sun, opened on Broadway. She became the youngest person, the fifth woman, the only black writer to win the Circle Award for the best play of the year. She was 29. She was really beautiful, bursting with talent, grace, charm, everything. And when she was 34, she died of cancer, and that's that. By now you are wondering, those of you new to these pages, what is all this about? Simple answer. Lorraine Hansberry was an early New York Daughters of Belitis member, and she contributed to this magazine in its very earliest years. When Robert Nemiroff, Lorraine Hansberry's Caucasian husband, asked help of readers everywhere in the New York Times capsule ads, for material about and by Miss Hansberry, and this is a project that would become um, to be young, gifted, and black. I wrote to him and offered her latter material. I did not receive, nor did I expect to receive a, a reply. 
So Hansberry and Nemiroff divorced a few years by, before her death, and it was actually a surprise that they had divorced to, um, to most people. They divorced quietly and continued to collaborate together, and she named him as her executor um, on, his, on her death. And Robert Nemiroff died a few years ago, and actually the papers are all closed and are waiting the completion of her biography by Margaret Wilkinson, who's at um, University of California, Berkeley. So I want to close with just a short passage from James Baldwin's obituary for Hansberry, because I think the words really best capture the spirit of the woman and what was, you know, what I see really clearly was her reaching for an ever-radicalized um, political and artistic vision and also reaching for a truth about her own experience. Sweet Lorraine, that's the way I always felt about her and so won't apologize for calling her that now. She understood that in far too brief a time, when we walked and talked and laughed and drank together, sometimes in the streets and bars and restaurants of the village, sometimes at her house, gracelessly fleeing the houses of others, and sometimes seeming, for anyone who didn't know us, to be having a knockdown, drag-out battle. I loved her. She was my sister and my comrade. Her going did not so much make me lonely as make me realize how lonely we were. We had that respect for each other, which perhaps is only felt by people on the same side of the barricades, listening to the accumulating thunder of the hooves of horses and the heads of tanks. I saw Lorraine in her hospital bed as she was dying. She tried to speak. She couldn't. She didn't seem frightened or sad, only exasperated that her body no longer obeyed her. She smiled and waved. But I prefer to remember her as she was the last time I saw her on her feet. We were at, of all places, the pen club. She was seated, talking, dressed in black, wearing a very handsome, wide black hat, thin and radiant. I said, Lorraine, baby, you look beautiful. How in the world do you do it? She was leaving. I have the impression she was on a staircase, and she turned and smiled that smiled and said, it helps to develop a serious illness, Jimmy, and waved and disappeared. On behalf of Penn and the New School, I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I'd especially like to thank all the readers for reading for us tonight. Thank you. Thank you.